Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And today we are talking to Michael Colbin, who is a journalist. He writes with a variety of publications, including Bellingcat, and he has a focus on transnational uh, fascism. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Well, thanks for having me. I guess, uh, just to begin with, could you explain maybe the last 20 years of Ukrainian geopolitics? Concisely for us, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll try. I'll, I, I might be might have to do a PhD dissertation to explain where that comes from, <laughs> to really explain where where it comes from. But uh, to try to you know pr- present it reasonably concisely, I think where contemporary Ukrainian nationalism comes from. I mean, what we see today in the country, particularly from the Azov movement, who listeners are might be or probably are aware of. That's a movement that has its roots in Ukrainian nationalism as far back as World War II with uh, collaborating forces uh, of Stepan Bandera, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, Ukrainian Insurgent Army. I don't need to get into the history and the politics and the historical memory disputes over, over all of that. But essentially what happened the story of Ukraine, Ukrainian nationalism after 1990, 1991 was something that you, something quite similar to what happened across a lot of other Central and Eastern European countries that had, after the fall of communism. And particularly what you see in countries like Ukraine, former Soviet country, and also what you saw in other Eastern Bloc countries like Czechoslovakia, obviously now Czech Republic and Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, and also what you saw in the former Yugoslavia in a slightly different way, but in as part of a similar trend, saw in countries like Croatia. What uh, happened after 1991 is in these in some of these countries like Ukraine, Croatia, Czech Republic, Slo- Slovakia, places like that, nationalism or any expression of nationalist sentiment, however mild, was suppressed by the authorities. And long story short, in not just obviously not just in Ukraine, but across the board, and very broad, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. But what ended up happening is, for for a number of reasons, the only way that one could sort of express dissatisfaction with anything in the communist era was through some sort of the, the essentially the only way or the most obvious way was through nationalism where people especially in places like ukraine croatia they where they felt with considerable justification that their identities as ethnic groups as groups of people as nations were being 
suppressed by communism. And what happened after the fall of communism in 1991, as these countries slowly gained their independence, these countries like Ukraine, their histories of being a nation are not, or as an independent nation, are, are not particularly long. There are not a lot of historical reference points for somebody in Ukraine or Croatia. Croatia is the other example I keep harking back on. Ukraine before 1991 had only had two very brief uh, flirtations with with independence as as an independent country, as an independent nation. And the most recent manifestation of that was during World War II with the limited control that some Nazi collaborating forces had in Western Ukraine. So what happened, again, not just in Ukraine, what happened after 1991 is that in, in a quest to not just build a nation, but also build a national identity, a lot of these, shall we say, more controversial figures from the World War II era past were partly brought back as as heroes. Or, uh, and in, in a sense, what was uh, suppressed so much during the communist era, any expression of nationalism, it's almost as if things turned on its head and nationalism whether whether mild or extreme became mainstream and that's essentially been the case in, for various ups and downs for the last three decades of Ukrainian independence and frankly the independence of a lot of countries in central and eastern europe where these countries like ukraine are still vexed by these questions of who they are as a nation as a country and when countries like that are still trying to trying to work through those issues and a whole host of other issues, you get this situation where the far right, far whether the extreme far rights, is able to step into the fold. And obviously, what happened in Ukraine in 2014 was the war with Russian-backed, Russian-led forces in the east, and for a number of reasons, that gave the far right another avenue to, even though they're still on the on the margins of society and in terms of pu public and popular support, it gave them an avenue for further legitimization. So th those are the first two pages of the 400-page dissertation, I think. <laughs> I, I guess as the Azov movement is something that our listeners probably are familiar with, but maybe just from hearing, you know, so-and-so went to Ukraine to fight yeah. with Azov. Could you, could you explain what, what is the Azov movement? What's its relationship with the conflict? The Azov movement is kind of a heterogeneous far-right social movement that has its immediate roots in 2014 in the war in in eastern Ukraine. It essentially came about because when Russian-backed and Russian-led forces started essentially invading Donbass in eastern Ukraine or fomenting a rebellion in eastern Ukraine in April 2014, Ukraine's army was in armed forces were just in complete tatters at that point. It was barely, it, I mean, I'm, I'm no military expert or military nerd but it was it was in no position to to be able to fight a conflict like that right away it was just disorganized it was underfunded it was under-resourced everything that could be wrong with it was wrong with it but what happened with the outbreak of war is that a, a lot of volunteers stepped in to fill the void and that included you know, well relatively regular citizens or other other different powerful people, oligarchs and and whatnot, funding small militias or bat battalions that uh, ended up getting official sanction 
from the authorities. They weren't operating outside of the law. And Azov was one of those sort of small battalions that came out of those circumstances. So basically, in April, May 2014, these sort of collection of far-right figures from a different, a few different groups of people, largely from the city of Kharkiv, the second biggest city in, in, eastern, in eastern Ukraine, where there was a, a long-standing small far-right group or outright neo-Nazi group called Patriot of Ukraine. They provided a lot of potential fighters, and then they also allied with a lot of the football hooligans in the country and formed, at first, just a few dozen far-right guys and hangers-on who were getting training and wanting to go fight. They got a sanction from the state that in included weapons, and very quickly in the conflict, April, May, June 2014, they swelled to a few hundred members, took part in some some battles that they still hang their hat on in terms of successes. The, the extent to which their their role was critical in these successes, I think, is still up for debate. But essentially, they grew, grew out of that, got slowly, got legitimized because essentially, Ukraine, they, they needed somebody, they, they needed people to fight. And among the people that were willing to fight for Ukraine against these, these Russian-backed forces in the East were far-right guys and neo-Nazis. And despite those views, they got sanctioned. And from there, they're on in 2014. They slowly grew a bit more, got more solidified. And by November 2014, they became officially part of the National Guard of Ukraine. So officially integrated into state structures. And then from that, over the next few years, it sort of grew and transmogrified into a, a larger social movement by 2016, a, a political party, the National Corps, and then all sorts of other offshoot little groups and sub-movements and almost NGOs. It, 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 essentially, it started from what was called the Azov Battalion at the time. Now, technically, the Azov Regiment, it grew, grew out of that into what we have in 2021, which is a like a, a very broad far-right social movement that uh, really doesn't have any equals across Europe right now. These uh, emergent forms of ultranationalism, mm. um, if you examine groups like Azov there on the far or extreme right, but mm -hmm. the conflict itself seems to have generated a whole series of other ideological conflicts involving notions of left and right and communism and anti-communism. And I understand that there are far-right groups and movements that are fighting, in a sense, on Russia's behalf within right. Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit more about how these these emergent forms of nationalism, especially in the Ukraine, mm. uh, create different forms of conflict between left and right and what those terms mean in this context? The, the terms left and right in the context of Ukraine period, let alone the context of of Ukraine during a war they're 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 not always for for those of us from places like Australia or Canada they're not always as easy to to pin down in this context but what's happened in the first few years of the conflict it's certainly something that has faded off in the last few years is the presence of uh, foreign fighters on both sides of the conflict and what you what you clearly have seen are far right neo nazi figures taking part on both sides of the conflict. And the reasons for that are pretty, uh, are pretty, pretty complex and sometimes quite contradictory. So you, you quite literally, I'm sure had these situations during, during the height of, of conflict where there were 
neo-Nazis from different countries who shared the same far-right views or worse, uh, who were on opposite sides of the battlefield just because they somehow decided that fighting for what they, well, they, they decided to oh, fight for, fight for the Ukrainian side against you know, Russian aggression, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes painting that in terms of a really superficial and sort of nonsensical anti-communism. You had that on that side. And then on the pro-Russian side, the quote unquote separatist side, you also had far-right neo-Nazi figures take part in that as well, like especially from countries like France. And you had people from places like Serbia as well who went to to fight on that side. But getting back to this sort of the, the way that anti-communism or anti-leftism period it's that's something that has been i think instrumentalized particularly by the ukrainian far right what you've seen uh, from the get-go with this conflict and i mean I and, I and i see it currently i mean i'm one of these people who fortunately or unfortunately has a job of pretty much reading everything the ukrainian far right puts out there every message that it, it says on its public channels and the way that uh, the aggression, because it was undoubtedly, it was undoubtedly aggression on the part of Russia and Russian-led, Russian-backed forces that's, that essentially started the conflict. Uh, it may have been in reaction to events on Maidan, but it was the, the 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 conflict never would have happened without Russia sticking its nose into it. But what the way that that Russian aggression or intervention has been talked about by the far right it's framed as if it's just a continuation of the old soviet legacy and thus that putin's regime as ridiculously hyper capitalist as it is they paint it as some like i see this phrase in a lot in a lot of this kind of literature as they call like a neo-bolshevik regime regime from the east and you get this kind of orientalism in the mix too and i think it doesn't take a lot of familiarity with contemporary russia or putin or the kremlin to realize that uh, the it's not exactly a, a bastion of communism, let alone anything that should lean to the left. So, and you did also on you didn't see it much on the Ukrainian side, but there were instances of I think foreign leftists or people who call themselves leftists going to fight for these pro-Russian statelets, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republics, and somehow buying into this idea that these unrecognized pro-Russian separatist statelets were actually some sort of socialist states. And I mean, come on, they're not. <laughs> yeah. So essentially I, what I'd say is the idea of the left or anything left wing in Ukraine, even before the war, there was really not much of a coherent organized left in the way that you might see in other countries or even, even in other countries in Central Eastern Europe. Part of that is down to the nature of Ukraine's political system uh, because of the influence of oligarchs. I mean, parties are hardly ideological at all in Ukraine. They more just act in certain various vested interests. But before 2014 and then especially after 2014 and 2015, public discourse in Ukraine is generally right wing and patriotic. It's not, I, I'm not going to say that it's, <laughs> It's nationalistic or far right across the board, but public discourse generally does lean to the right and ideas that might be seen as too left are thus seen as pro-Russian. So with, with, within that context, there's a lot of painting within Ukraine of anything that's <laughs> perceived as left wing 
painting it as left wing equals Kremlin equals pro Russian. And it's a very, it's a very, it's a very strange thing to have to wrap your mind around. Like when I, when the far right criticizes things, things that I do or say and paints me as being in league with the Kremlin because of that, it's just like, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that famous Bellingcat Russian uh, love affair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That too. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> look, look who I write these things for. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We are currently talking to Michael Colbin about the Ukrainian far right. And I think it's probably fair to say that this is the sort of conversation you will not find anywhere else on the Australian airwaves. So do please consider supporting, allowing us to continue having these conversations by subscribing to 3CR. Check out 3cr.org.au slash subscribe for more information. I'm glad to hear you say that it's confusing and contradictory because I always find it incredibly confusing. I I think, yeah, it is. And it's confusing and some of it is incredibly contradictory. And if you have, if somebody has in their mind, a sense of how they think things play out. And then all, all of a sudden you find out, Oh, then what this person is saying that now what's going on. But yeah, don't worry. It's, it's complex and contradictory at the best of times. Well, just on that point, we saw with the uh, iron March, the neo-Nazi yes. forum had these weird Russian connections. Yeah. The guy that was running the base was in Russia. Yeah. And yet iron March was full of people talking about going to yeah. fight for Azov. Yeah. Uh, we also saw last year you wrote uh, that Azov were like promoting pro-Putin authors. Like, what's all that about? I think with, especially with with Iron March, there's it's really quite you have with with looking at things like Iron March or with the, generally with the international far right. One thing I've I've learned, at least I think I've learned, with covering them and researching them and getting to to some extent, understand them, is that these categorizations of pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin, or pro-Russian or not pro-Russian, this sort of black and white thinking doesn't, uh, it doesn't always apply to these guys. So that's why you would have a, a site like Iron March, which was, you know, run by somebody in Russia and clearly had these Russian connections. But at the same time, if you look back, and I think I've, I've touched on and then some articles, I think I wrote more than a year ago. You look through those stuff on Iron March. There are, there's a lot of talk about Azov being the greatest thing since sliced bread, people wanting to go and fight for the pro Ukrainian side and somebody from Azov actually in, you know, chatting with people and mute, at least talking about getting people to go fight. This is like in 2015 or 2016. So it's, it's old news now, but this is all going on on a website that is being run by somebody with, you know, based in Russia. And you mentioned the example of the article that I wrote, uh, might have been just over a year ago. Yeah. What I found interesting is these, these guys that are part of the Azov movement and kind of particularly on sort of a, an extreme faux intellectual wing of it. They kind of developed this obsession with Franco Freda, who was an Italian neo-fascist terrorist from the years of lead, the 1970s in Italy. And they sort of developed a strange fascination with the Italian years of lead, and they translated a few works by Franco Freda, and that's what that article was about. And the reason why I framed the article the way that I did is because doing, you know, I'd already heard of, um, of Freda, but then I I did a bit more research and then I, I was just struck by the fact that these Azov guys were promoting somebody who is over, who's completely pro Putin. And so that sort of thing is not a contradiction for them. They, in the way that they justified it after the fact and they, they were not impressed 
with my article or me or the the fact that I framed Franco Freda like that. They don't see any contradiction between like uh, like if somebody on on the global far right has produced something or has some theory or some work that they think is interesting for them, they don't care at all if that person is like now pro pro Russian or pro Putin. They don't give a shit. And I think that's another example of the contradictions that you see. I mean, yeah, we can say that the far right, especially far right extremism anywhere is beset by all these contradictions and by extremists themselves doing and acting in ways that just are like just on their face. So ridiculously contradictory. And there's actually quite a good example uh, recently from Ukraine of this, this kind of like comical contradiction. It was about two weeks ago now. Time as time keeps keeps running running away with me. So I think it was two weeks ago by now. I don't know. I can't remember. The president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, he did something that had been you know some nationalists, patriotic people in the far right had wanted him to do, and even his predecessor that wanted him to do for a while, and he. Effectively, well, he did outright ban three television channels that were linked to the that linked to the pro-Russian opposition party, and that were linked to Viktor Medvedchuk, who is a a leading pro-Russian oligarch in Ukraine and somebody who's very close to Vladimir Putin. And so, after when once these channels were banned, the uniform opinion upon sort of the mainstream civil society in Ukraine and 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 the far right actually was that. Oh, banning these channels is great. You saw in the Azov movements, uh, telegram channels and public communications, just praising this decision and shutting down these channels was such an, such a brave, important thing to do. And this, you know, just talking about how Viktor Medvedchuk and these channels are Russian propaganda tools. And if you look back, you don't have to look back very far. These Azov guys have been on all these channels. And I, I mean, I'm, I, po- I sent some photos to people because I just find it absurd that there was, there was a period of time about a year ago, actually, where for a period of a few months, these leading Azov figures would go on these channels. And one of, one of these leading figures, I don't remember what his exact position is off the top of my head. Maxim Jordan is his name. And he posted something and it had his 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 face in the in the picture. It was like some sort of promo picture. You know, he's pretty recognizable because he has this kind of long beard and just you can pick him out of a crowd. And he was this sort of promo picture of him, you know, looking all looking all tough with these sign, you know, these signs, you know, crossed out signs of these three pro-Russian television channels. And then I just had to search on the Telegram channel from about ten months ago. And he's appeared not just on, he's, he himself, this one guy has been on all three of these channels as a guest. And so have his, his colleagues. And they don't, they don't hide any of these contradictions. And it, it makes it really complicated to try to understand like, okay, what do these guys actually really stand for? Are I mean, these guys that are painting themselves? It's, it's not as simple as, oh, these guys who are painting themselves as anti-Kremlin are actually pro-Kremlin because they're going on these channels or anything like that. I think it's just these these guys don't care. And they embrace the, the ridiculous nature of the contradictions as just part of who they are. And within Ukraine, they just they, they do get called out on it some very quietly. It's more people abroad who like me who make fun of it and call them out for it. Speaking of the influence of foreign texts, it's also 
been the case that as far as Australia is concerned, along with sending, uh, I guess, several fighters, a manifesto produced by the Christchurch killer mm-hmm. has been translated into Ukraine and distributed there. Can you mm. speak a little bit about that? I, I certainly can, yes. In July or August 2019, when I was doing a lot of work then specifically for Bellingcat looking into the Ukrainian far right, I just happened to see on a Telegram channel, because by this point, you know, by a few months after the, the Christchurch attacks, I was able to, you know, recognize what the cover of his, the ridiculous cover of that manifesto looked like. And there was a post in a very extreme neo-Nazi channel in Ukrainian that I followed that posted about what looked like a bound copy of the Christchurch shooters manifesto in Ukrainian. And then it didn't take long to figure out from just looking at the literal post itself that this guy had either himself, well, a, a group of people, somebody had taken the Christchurch shooters manifesto and, translated it into Ukrainian and was selling that for, I think, the equivalent of about $3, both within Ukraine and beyond. And people who had bought the manifesto would send photos back of themselves posing with it in various places or with uh, various flags or paraphernalia with it, like actual literal Nazi flags and daggers with swastikas in them, that sort of nonsense. And at the same time, another group, Wotanjugend, who is a, a sort of a Russia-based neo-Nazi network or website, I guess we'll call them, but they're based in Ukraine now. They, on their website, published, no, I don't know if they they translated it themselves or not, uh, but they pasted up on their website a Russian language translation of the Chrysler Tutors Manifesto. So I wrote an article in August 2019 pointing out that, hey, these are, there are other translations of this manifesto going around, but here's Here's two examples of it, one in Russian being put up on a popular Russian language neo-Nazi website, and another translated, not just translated into a language, but bound as like a real book and sold. And that just horrified me, and that compelled me to write about it. And very quickly after, I know the Prime Minister of New Zealand was rightly not particularly pleased about this going on. Ukrainian authorities said they were looking into it. Uh, right after we published that article, we we started getting death threats and things like that. We got a, a few more as 2019 wore on. But eventually in 2020, Ukrainian authorities reportedly arrested the individuals behind the manifesto, but the the Telegram channel that promoted it is still operating. Those manifestos, as far as I know, were being sold into being sold and distributed into last year, and they also started after the su- success, quote unquote, at least as they they frame it. So whether we take them at their word or not, they decided to use a, to translate it into Russian or use a Russian translation, whatever, and also sell bound copies of that. So, I mean, the, the idea that there are individuals taking a ridiculous manifesto that was just nothing more than a, than a call to murder and selling that as like a real book is still just, yeah, I don't, I don't have the words to describe it. And I'm glad that, well, it, that it, se- it seems that the sale of that manifesto has either stopped or very much, you know, deteriorated. 
Well, Michael, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we will have a few more questions with you on the podcast version of this show, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran, and people can find you on Twitter at at Colbin Michael. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Well, that was a very interesting chat, Andy. It was, Cam, as ever. And you know what else is interesting? No. Please please tell me, Cam. Subscribing to 3CR. Andy, why should people do that? Well, I think if people are interested in uh, maintaining this sort of uh, content on the airwaves, along with the many fantastic shows that 3CR puts to air, unfortunately, it all costs money. So if you have a spare few dollars, you know, I'd urge listeners to uh, support the station, support our work and, and the uh, amazing work done by so many others. Well, that's all we've got time for. Global Infarder is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then. Recently, there was a uh, debate in the UN about a motion that was put uh, about uh, uh, commemorating genocide and mm. the crimes of the past within Europe. And that motion was, I think, uh, supported by Russia and opposed by others, as well as, I guess, uh, if you look at the, the, the laws that have been introduced into Poland regarding historical accounts of the Holocaust and uh, Polish collaboration and so on. What's what's at stake in these sorts of debates about historical memory and how do you think this plays into the current uh, conflicts we're witnessing in Ukraine and Russia and Eastern Europe generally? Well, I think the first thing is that historical memory or interpretations of historical memory are still they're being instrumentalized as a weapon like that resolution that you, that you just mentioned. Uh, that's something that I know Russia has pushed at the UN before. And despite it sounding, well, well, despite it being agreeable, I think to all of us, the reason for that, the reason for even doing that sort of resolution in the first place is they, they put that resolution forward, knowing or hoping that Western countries, including the US and Ukraine, will vote against it. And therefore, they can say, hey, these guys are in league with Nazis. I don't attach any seriousness to that that UN resolution. I think there's a lot to criticize Western countries and my own country, our countries, on what they do about the far right and far right extremism. I don't think that uh, that resolution that resolution is just something for for new cycle fodder for for Russia. But in general, historical memory is still a huge issue, obviously not just across Eastern Europe, but it's it remains an issue for for all of us. I mean, both like there in Australia and here in Canada, we are both still wrestling, not always successfully, with our histories of treatment of of indigenous populations but in 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 eastern europe uh, the issue kind of relates back to i think what I, what I was speaking a bit about earlier which is that for a lot of these countries in eastern europe that essentially became independent substantially or in in actual fact for the first time in the 1990s uh they had to embark on a process of not just building a state but building a nation, building a, building a, a national identity. And when you're a country in that situation, what a lot of these countries have done is drawn inspiration from episodes from the past of attempts at national liberation. And now this is where we come into big problems because in, for example, the Ukrainian context, the, Ukrainian nationalist national liberation efforts 
in the late 1930s, early 1940s, were, were they collaborated with the Nazis, despite what people still say today. They, I'm sorry, guys, they did collaborate with the Nazis, even though they also fought against them at times. And some of these figures also participated in, in the Holocaust as well. And you had this in Croatia as well, where after the fall of Yugoslavia, the rise of Croatian nationalism or trying to build a Croatian national identity, so much of that was focused on figures from from the Ustasha regime, uh, which I mean, which perpetrated some absolutely ridiculous atrocities against Jews and Roma and Serbs in the, in the former Yugoslavia. So the the contradiction is that some of in in these countries the pantheon of national heroes is unfortunately filled with people who may certainly have been people who care deeply about their country or deeply about their nation or their language and wanting to be independent. But they were also people who took willingly took part in and perpetrated some massive, massive crimes. And those legacies still very much have not been resolved. They certainly haven't been re resolved in Ukraine. Uh, for example, looking at the figure of Stepan Bandera, who was a leading Ukrainian nationalist, e even though he was imprisoned by the Nazis for a period of the war, he was first and foremost a, a, co a collaborator with the Nazis to fight against the Soviets. And some of his forces, even though he didn't personally take part, some of his some of his forces, people under his his command, took took part in the Holocaust and the murder of Jews and Poles. And Bandera is. For some Ukrainians, a lot of Ukrainians, not maybe not a majority, but a lot of Ukrainians, is still a national hero, and the, the same. The, it's the same sort of thing in other other countries as well. Where, how do you reconcile naming somebody like that a national hero with all the crimes that? they or people under their command or people associated with them perpetrated in the past. Now, one strategy is is the absolute denialism, and that's what you get uh, in Ukraine with this sort of uh, historical memory looking back to World War II, just flat out saying that U Ukrainian nationalist forces didn't take part in in the Holocaust or in mass slaughter, or they didn't, they just flat out say, oh, they didn't collaborate with the Nazis. So you have this gulf between Western historians who have poured through the historical archives especially after after the fall of communism and the evidence is pretty clear and pretty damning that there was a pretty broad collaboration with the nazis yet they still try to deny that some of those things took place and that's that's the same sort of story across a lot of other eastern european countries where you see that like lithuania as well where the pantheon of national heroes those the People who are treated as national heroes now as symbols or people who should be an inspiration to a nation as it continues to, for to forge a national identity for itself. The things that they did in the past are just ignored or denied, or in the cases of the extreme right, they're acknowledged and thought of as, as good things. And then the, the converse on the other side is, especially in the Ukrainian context, is you have the, the Kremlin, and you definitely saw this, have seen this for since 2014 in Ukraine, but the Kremlin spent, you know, in, in 
well, back in back in Soviet times, spent uh, decades demonizing any manifestation, however mild, of Ukrainian nationalism as equivalent to Stepan Bandera, and then that included like tr- trying to write or publish things in Ukrainian at certain points, and. Even after the fall of communism and right into 2014, there still is this sense among people of that sort of Soviet era ilk that uh, any manifestation of even the slightest tinge of Ukrainian identity, even say wanting to speak the Ukrainian language or anything like that, equating anything like that with the, the worst excesses of of far-right nationalism so the problem is you get russia now and you know especially since 2014 instrumentalizing anti-fascism for its own ends and then the converse is you get ukrainian ukrainians who will say that uh any criticism of 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 the issue of the far right in the country is tantamount to repeating Kremlin propaganda. So you get in the sort of black and white, either or style thinking. And then that's where people like me get stuck in some very broad middle where we will gladly point out, and I'm sort of far from the only journalist or researcher who does this, point out the, the real issues and dangers with the situation with the far right in Ukraine without falling into these ridiculous propaganda tropes. But for it's 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 a middle that is not always the best spot to be in, but unfortunately, it's the right spot to be in. How does a figure like uh, Nestor Makhno figure in the contemporary uh, Ukrainian imagination? Uh, very, very little. Frankly, like a name like Nestor Makhno is not a name I hear a lot. Frankly, I, just, I haven't read or heard much about his his anything to do with him in in a while. I, it, it's that that sort of history of of Ukraine with Nestor Makhno never never really comes up because when you I, I guess when you think about um, or when you mention a middle ground or a, a, a third way or something like that, uh, Makhno was uh, a figure who you know an anarchist who fought uh, Reds and Whites in yeah. Ukraine in the name of a some kind of yeah. free society, but that yeah. doesn't fit in. I think. Uh, the contemporary far right in Ukraine would just see Mahno as part of this broad "quote unquote" neo Bolshevik left, which includes uh, everyone. So, <laughs> we've spoken a bit about people going to Ukraine to fight mm-hmm. Azov, but uh, we've also seen people from Azov traveling overseas to get involved in things. Uh, I seem to recall a couple of years ago in Hong Kong, a bunch of Azov guys showed up to sort of mass confusion. Yeah. Uh, What's that about? And is this sort of conflict tourism common? Uh, what you just mentioned that that's especially now with COVID, you know, in the past just under a year now, that really isn't common. And the situation you mentioned, I think it might have happened more than a year ago. Yeah. Uh, those, those, uh, far right fellows who went to be revolutionary tourists in Hong Kong. Now the situation with them is interesting because even at that time, those guys had kind of moved away from Azov and were kind of doing their own thing. I think they were still clearly on the far right, but they were more just interested as in being protest slash revolutionary tourists and kind of getting into doing 
doing their own sort of videography and graffiti type things. So at the time, those guys had made that visit to Hong Kong. I have to look up the exact dates. I don't even remember when it was. Uh, but by that time, they had already kind of moved moved away from Azov. And since then, they've moved. They had moved even further away from Azov to the point where they had open conflict with the leadership of the Azov movement and even physical confrontation, as I recall, back uh, last May. And since then, these guys have these guys I'm talking about who went to Hong Kong, they've gone really quiet to the point where I, I don't know what they're, I think they're just laying completely low and doing their own things with private security or whatever else they've decided to do now. But that's so, sort of thing of revolutionary tourism from, from Ukraine out, or at least international networking right now, one, because of COVID and two, because of the international attention and criticism that it got from figures like myself and others, uh, they really lessened a lot of that uh, over the last year. Like, whereas in 20, 2018, 2019, their international secretary would go to different events and things across Europe. Now they don't do they don't do any of that, or at least they don't do any of that publicly. I think uh, their focus, Azov's focus, especially since late. 2019 and now and then into 2020 and especially with covid their focus at least f for now is much more internally within ukraine i think they've recognized that it's too difficult and there's there's too much of a risk right now with trying to you know form these connections or export their model and to be perfectly honest i don't i don't think the leadership or at least a lot of the leadership is that interested in 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 doing that that sort of thing so if there's any potential blessing to covid it might seem like a blessing right now is that it's curtailed some of these in-person uh far-right networking opportunities but i think we all know that's that's not going to last and they've still been doing all this stuff online anyways speaking of uh revolutionary tourism and uh, propaganda, it does seem to be the case that many of those sorts of uh, actions or antics are uh, performed precisely, well, performed for the camera to <clears> create <throat> content which can then be distributed on social yeah, media as absolutely. propaganda. Azov has had some presence on Facebook and other channels. Mm. What's been the nature of its social media productions? Mm. And I, I guess with increasing criticism of uh, sites like Facebook and so on, there's been various sorts of crackdown. But mm -hmm. how does Azov uh, negotiate social media since its emergence and I guess mm. in the contemporary period? Well, right now, especially over the past few months and you know, back into last year, They've had some considerable issues because they have been effectively banned, well, outright banned from Facebook and Instagram. So there are no official organizational accounts on Facebook. Uh, there are sometimes new ones that pop up that sort of have fake names but are very easily linkable to Azov and some of those disappear and even ones that have stuck around, they have limited followers and exposure. So the way that they might have used Facebook or Instagram before has been completely curtailed as a tool for them. So like on Instagram, their private, you know, individual members or individual people associated with the movement uh, might still have their pages, whether they're public or private. Um, and then some of those get shut down, but, the prominent figures, prominent figures, prominent communicators, um, uh, any sort of 
quote unquote official accounts with particular bodies in the movement, like for example, a national core political party, those things really don't exist on Facebook or Instagram anymore for them. That tool has been taken away from them. So they increasingly now have to rely on Telegram, which is the story of a lot of far right extremists across the globe right now. And, but in Ukraine in general, especially in, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia and, and, and other countries, Telegram is already much more commonly used than it is in a lot of other countries. Like Telegram is, is used, even though it's still a, a very small percentage of the population that uses Telegram, it's still much more used by mainstream politicians and mainstream figures than it would be in the West, for example. So Azov's main social media communication tool right now is still te- is telegram and th- they 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 do use twitter as well there are official accounts that that i follow that anyone can follow that do post things but they get almost no no engagement or no exposure because i think the people they're reaching out to are inc- even within ukraine because all this stuff is in exclusively in ukrainian or in some cases russians mostly in ukrainian they're not reaching out to any international audience so they're they're in a bit of a bind with social media right now, especially in the Ukrainian context, because I think as anybody who's familiar with the Ukrainian social media space knows, Facebook is king in Ukraine in terms of having influence or reaching out or reaching people. And Azov can't, can't use it right now. So any attempts to reach a broader group of people, they're really having some trouble with that. Uh, they still have things on YouTube. Uh, which do get several thousand views for some of their videos. There was some recent video. Uh, I can't figure out where they promoted it, but they had to have promoted it somewhere because within 48 hours, it got like 45,000 views. So they're still going to try to, what they'll try to do is figure out every, every exception, every nook and cranny to try to, to get their message out there with some of these platforms. Because I think like all people on the far right, they understand the power of, of these platforms and the many new platforms that come along and they're going to try to use them. Just finally, maybe this yeah. taking a bit of a, a diversion from Azov. Uh, someone, someone else you've reported on recently is Robert Rundo and the Rise Above movement. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? I think there's some, uh, illustrative uh, comparisons to be made of, you know, like-hungry MMA guys mm-hmm. uh, to things happening elsewhere. Right. Uh, well, Robert Rundo is quite a, a, an interesting character to to report on in terms of the global far right. And for, for listeners who might not know, a uh, quick background is that Rundo is American, uh, was one of the founders of the Rise Above movement, whose, se- several of whose members uh, are in prison on various assault and rioting charges for uh, actions at uh, events across the U.S. in 2017, including at Charlottesville. Uh, Rundo himself and a few other of his comrades uh, were charged under f- some federal anti-riot legislation with their own violence at rallies, I believe, in California. And their case got thrown out in 2019, but the U.S. attorneys are appealing it, and the the, the hearing the first he, the hearing for that was in November, and so right now Rundo and his comrades are waiting for the outcome of that appeal. If the appeal is successful, then presumably at some point Rundo would face a new trial in the U.S. If the appeal is rejected, then he remains a free man. And so what Rundo did about a year ago, if not more, was he he left. He left the United States and 
went to Eastern Europe. He'd had connections in Ukraine with figures related to the Azov movement. Those guys again. But those connections kind of seemed to have faded off because he found himself in last February in 2020. He was at a, a neo-Nazi event in Budapest in Hungary. And then two weeks later, he was at another far-right event in Sofia in, in Bulgaria. And ironically enough, I myself was at both of those events, covering those events. And in one of those cases, I didn't actually see him and had to have him pointed out to me, which was embarrassing enough. Cause, <laughs> but after that, uh, he ended up going to Serbia. And this was, this was not really a secret. I mean, cause he posted stuff from being at this event in Hungary and being, and being at this event in Bulgaria and then filming a YouTube video from what was clearly recognizable as central Belgrade. And from there, when he would post something, it was kind of seemed like, well, it was clear that he was still camped out or holed up in Eastern Europe somewhere. And as it became clearer and clearer, into like August, September last year that he was in Serbia. And in October, last October, so just a few months ago, I was writing an article about mixed martial arts, combat sports in the far right. And on his Telegram channel, a few months before, Rondo had said that several Rise Above movement, or some Americans, presumably friends of his, were going to take part in a far-right mixed martial arts event in Germany in October. That event kind well, it basically, the, that event never went ahead as planned, is the best way to summarize it right now. And I contacted Rondo for comment and uh, got some interesting responses from him, shall we say. And so I decided to just kind of see, okay, see what he's up to. And the reason why I really decided to look into him is because I realized he was in Serbia and I happened to be in Serbia at the time as well. So I started looking into what he was doing in Serbia, trying to figure out conclusively that he was there. And as I wrote about in a Bellingcat article in ended up publishing in November last year, it was very clear, conclusively clear that he was in Serbia and trying to build some sort of base there. So I published an article it was drawing on some things from his past, but some pretty basic open source research from his Telegram channel, looking looking at photos, geolocating photos, other hints and clues that kind of were dropped on social media to basically pretty easily draw a conclusion. Okay, this guy is in Belgrade, least of all because he founded a company in Serbia and that with his his name. So it was very easy to 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 find that piece of evidence. So I wrote that article and that article, I mean, I didn't think it was particularly revelatory or groundbreaking, but there's some new things in it and pointing out that this American far-right extremist was trying to make a new home for himself in Serbia. But that article really got a lot of coverage within Serbia. A lot of outlets picked up on it. I was interviewed like the, a day or two after it was published. I was interviewed by a few TV stations. Uh, it got written up by a few different outlets. And then that, it, then because of the article that I wrote, or at least largely because of the article that I wrote, his, he started getting a lot more attention in Serbia, including from anti-fascist activists within Serbia. And so that carried on into December. And then in December, he was posting other pictures that were making it even more obvious he was still in Serbia. And 
I think it was maybe at the end of December, January of this year, um, some article on some fringe far-right Serbian website that had kind of connections to him, it published some hilarious article that was that claimed that uh, I was using NATO money to fund uh, Belgrade's anti-fascists. Now, th- I, I think it should be pretty pretty clear that's uh, that's that's false. I, I I don't have that kind of money. I don't have NATO money, well, and I would. You're working uh, for you're working for Putin, right? So yeah, like uh, how does uh, for one one second I'm working for for the Kremlin, then I'm working for NATO. And then sometimes I'm working, I'm working for Mossad. Sometimes I'm working because f- I write for Al Jazeera. Sometimes I'm working for God. I, I, I'm, I must be some sort of really duplicitous character to keep all these different, uh, but anyways, and also, and so this ridiculous article came out and you can see that Rondo, because of the media coverage he got in 2017 from American journalists, he absolutely loathes media and journalists. He thinks we're all in league with law enforcement, which is kind of hilarious. So anyways, uh, over the last few weeks, I'd see a few other things come up from this guy, knowing that he was still in Serbia and trying to trying to build a bit of a network in Serbia with this sort of fringe part of the Serbian far right. Uh, I was clearly at least giving them some skills or insights into how to do propaganda, graffiti, far right fashion. He started, he restarted up a far right fashion brand. Then he was working closely with some other far right fashion brand in Serbia. And then a few days ago, uh, because I'm still in Canada right now, uh, I woke up to news. It still hasn't been confirmed, but a report that Rondo had been kicked out of Serbia, that police had escorted him to the border with Bosnia and kicked him out of the country. So that is where the odyssey that is Robert Rondo in Eastern Europe is at right now, is he's reportedly being kicked out of the country that he's trying to make a base from. And uh, we'll figure out where the guy goes from there. Now he's an interesting character because on the one hand, he's, he's really not some kind of hugely important figure or, or, or big shot on the far right. He's very clearly somebody who is not very intelligent, not doesn't have the organizational skills or the, or the, (laughs) the project management skills or anything like that, that other people on the far right do. He has some charisma and abilities to get people to do things, but I think it's pretty clear if you look at the people he's tried tried and maybe failed to form relationships with, he's he's not some super threatening, high-ranking luminary of the far right. But on the other hand, he is still a figure of some importance, of some influence, and what a figure like that does to try to build international networks is of huge importance, particularly if you think about the kinds of people that are going to follow in this guy's wake, basically, you know, the Rondo story is, it's a, it's fascinating. It's, it's interesting. It's, it reveals a few things about uh, how far right actors operate, but at the same time, he sometimes, you you can't overstate his, you can't overstate his importance because sometimes he's a bit of a clownish figure in terms of how he communicates compared to other people on the far right who, are sometimes considerably smarter than he is. Well, I think we might leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael.
war with drones, you can fight a war with loans, you can fight a war with gas or cans of paint. But don't you realize that the game's compromised if you think that this is something that it ain't? We got images of murder that don't manage to disturb An international order that is bordering absurd And no one gets the freedom they were told that they deserve Till they realize that freedom's not a noun It's a verb, it's a verb Freedom is a verb Something never finished, never done It's something you must make It's something you must take It's something you must constantly become This weekend revolution, it's a radical inclusion It's a holiday of popular revolt It's the social interaction of inconsequential actions Using faces to replace a silent vote But lower pay and higher rents, another kind of violence The violence of silence and of greed It's the violence of feeling your irrelevance Revealing every way in which you never will be freed It's a verb, it's a verb and an urge as fertile as the barrel of a gun and it happens out of need it's a fire and a seed and it's terrible potential has begun Constantly in jeopardy, it's something you must loyally defend. But isn't it demeaning when your well-intended meetings mean your means will have to justify your ends? So improvise a barricade of furniture cascading as a carnival of helmets in the flood. For the bottles can be filled with either gasoline or lager or detergent that'll wash away your blood. It's a verb, it's a verb. Freedom is a verb, something never finished, never done. It's something you can fake, and it's something that'll break if it ain't something that you constantly become. It's a verb, it's a verb, an action and urge, as fertile as a barrel of a gun. And it happens out of need, it's a fire and a seed, and it's terrible potential has and not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.